Good to see you guys tonight. Thankful that you're here. It's going to be a good night. You know, if you grew up playing sports, how many of you, you grew up playing, playing some kind of sport? You can raise your hand if you dance or cheerlead. You can raise your hand. All right. If you grew up playing sports, there was probably an athlete uh, that you looked, you looked up to, somebody that you kind of aspired to be like. Maybe if you played basketball, that was Steph Curry. You loved watching Steph. Uh, maybe if you played football, it was Tom Brady. Maybe if you uh, played baseball, it was someone like Mike Trout, or if you swim, it was someone like, like Michael Phelps. But this athlete... You love to, to watch them play. You love to try to mimic and emulate their game. You wanted to be just like this athlete. Well, when I was in middle school, I loved playing basketball. It was, it was my favorite sport to play growing up through elementary school, through middle school. And, and most kids who grow up playing basketball, when they envision who they want to be, is normally someone like Michael Jordan. They want to be like Mike or they want to be the next Kobe, or they want to be the next LeBron. But listen, even when I was 10 years old, I was a realist. I've been a realist my whole life. Even when I was 10 years old, I was a realist. And I knew I was never going to be the next Kobe or the next LeBron. You know how I knew that? Because I am a skinny, unathletic white guy. And that's just the facts. That's just the reality. I'll own it. And, and, the, and the truth is, most of the guys in this room, you just need to own that as well. Skinny, unathletic, white guy. Look, I knew I was never going to be six foot, eight inches tall. I knew I was never going to be able to dunk. I knew I was never going to be some incredible athlete. And I had the maturity in the fifth grade to accept that. I was able to accept this difficult truth in life that you can't be whatever you want to be. I know that's what your, your parents tell you and your third grade teacher told you. You can be whatever you want to be, but there are certain limitations in life that you're just not ever going to be able to overcome, and I was able to accept that. But there was a guy that I love to watch named J.J. Reddick. How many of you have ever even heard of J.J. Reddick? It'll be like, yeah, like seven of you. So J.J. Reddick was the shooting guard for Duke from 2002 to 2006. And then he played about 15 years in, in, the, in the NBA. And here's why I loved J.J. Redick. Here's why I loved him. Because he was a skinny, unathletic, white guy. And I think we've got a picture of him up there. Like you, you, you see. So here's the thing with J.J. Here's the thing with J.J. He wasn't quick. He couldn't dunk. He wasn't jacked, but this dude could shoot. Like before there was like Steph Curry blowing things up, this dude could sink threes. He was like 92% from the free throw line. Like this dude was automatic shooting the basketball. And I felt like I could relate to him because I thought we were kind of similar. Like here's a guy who looks like me, who's unathletic, who's skinny, who's making it happen. I knew I was never going to be the next Kobe Bryant but maybe I could be the next J.J. Redick. Now, clearly, that didn't happen either. But here, here's what I know. Here's what I know. We relate to people that we are, are, are similar to. 
Like we, we naturally connect with people who are, who are similar to us. We relate to people with, with similar life experiences, to people with, with similar values and beliefs, to people who have faced similar challenges and, and struggles. Like similarity, it creates relatability. We naturally connect with people who are similar to us, to people who are, who are like us. But I think if we're, if we're honest, many of us, we, we struggle to relate to God because God is so different from us. It can be hard for us to, to connect with God relationally because God is not like us. Like when we think about God, God is infinite. God is outside of time, outside of space. God is this, this big God and we are finite. We are bound by time and space. God is holy and perfect, and we are flawed and, and broken. God is, is, is all-powerful, and we're not. And we wonder, like, how can I possibly relate to a God who is so different than me? How can I possibly have a relationship with someone who is so different? But here's the big idea tonight. Here's what we're going to see, that God became like us so that he could relate to us. The God of the universe, the God who's all-powerful, the God who created everything, he became like you and me so that he could relate to us, so that he could connect to us, so that he could understand us. And John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us this. It says, the word, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh, meaning Jesus became human and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. You see, 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven and came to earth as Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, and Jesus came to earth and he took on flesh and he became just like us. He was fully God and fully man. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He wasn't some weird hybrid, some weird combination. No, no, no. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And tonight, we're going to see the human side of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus on full display. And it's the humanity of Jesus, his human side, his human nature that allows us to relate to him, that allows us to connect with him. So we are in a week two of our series, Journey to the Cross. And during this series, we're looking at the final moments of Jesus' life, the events that led up to the crucifixion. And really the, the goal for this series, my, my goal for, for you all is for you to begin to set your, your minds and your hearts on Easter weekend. On a weekend that has incredible significance and relevance for your life even today. A weekend in history that changed everything for everyone. And last week we began this series by looking at what is often called the Last Supper. This was Jesus' final meal with his 12 closest followers, his 12 disciples. They came together to celebrate the, the Passover together. But this was unlike any Passover any of them had ever experienced before. When they gathered that night, it was, it was different. It was weird. Halfway through the meal, 
And Jesus drops this, this bomb on them. He says, one of you at this table, one of you who has been with me for the last three years, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to stab me in the back and, and, and turn on me. And all the disciples began to wonder, who is this? Who is Jesus talking about? Who is going to betray him? And then Jesus began to predict how he was going to die in just a few hours. He says, my, my, my body is like this bread. My body is going to be broken. And this, this, this wine that we're drinking, it represents my, my blood, which is going to be poured out. I'm going to be broken and poured out for the sins of, of this world. And tonight, as we continue this series, we're going to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So the disciples, they have finished the Passover Seder. It was a weird night, and it's now kind of getting pretty, pretty late in the evening. And, and at this point, Jesus' disciples, they are completely confused. Like, they know something is up. Jesus isn't acting like himself. Something is going on, but they can't figure it out what it, what it is. They have no idea what is getting ready to happen. And Jesus leads them to this garden called Gethsemane. I've got a picture on the screen of, uh, of the actual garden where, where Jesus led his disciples. This garden, it was located on the Mount of Olives. And this was a place that Jesus and his disciples would visit often. They would spend time there together, hanging out in fellowship, praying together. And this evening, Jesus took his disciples there because he needed to pray. And then verse 37 tells us this. Jesus, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, talking about James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus, he, he pulls away from the group of disciples and takes just three guys with him. Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends. He kind of pulls away from the group. He brings them together. And, and Jesus just starts to, to break down in front of them. I, I'm guessing that Jesus was, was probably trembling. Tears were probably filling his eyes. Like something was seriously wrong. And they weren't used to seeing Jesus like this. Jesus is normally this guy who, who keeps his composure, who's in a, in a good mood, who's positive, and they're seeing their leader, this guy who's, who they've been following, just completely break down in front of them. And Jesus tells them, I am overwhelmed with sorrow. I'm overwhelmed to the point where I feel like I'm going to die. He's breaking down emotionally. He's breaking down physically. He's saying, look, I, I just need you to stay with me, and I need you to keep watch. I need to spend some time praying. I need you to have my back. I need you to, to be on the lookout. And in verse 39, it says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is you will, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus, he, he leaves the three disciples. Hey, can we get a leader over here with this middle school group with, with Isaiah and Jackson? Thank you. He leaves his three disciples, and he goes off to, to pray on his own. And it says that he falls to the ground. He, he falls on, on, on his face, and he takes this posture of just complete humility and complete dependence, and he begins to, to cry out to God. 
He begins to cry out to his father in heaven, and he's saying, God, please take this cup from me. Like, if there's any other way, please take this cup. He's pleading, he's begging with God. And and what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? What is he asking God to, to take from him? You see, this cup, it represented God's wrath. And Jesus knew He understood what he was getting ready to face on the cross in just a few hours. God was going to pour out his wrath on his son because Jesus was going to take on the sins of the entire world. He was going to take on the punishment that was deserved. And I think it's important to, to understand here Jesus was not afraid of the physical pain of the crucifixion. Like Jesus isn't being a coward. Jesus isn't getting cold feet and trying to back out at the last minute and say, no, 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 I don't want to do this. No, Jesus knew that on the cross while he was being crucified that he would no longer be in God's presence. That God would have to turn away from him that God would have to turn his back on his son because God could not look on the sin of the world because of God's holiness. And Jesus knew he was getting ready to experience the fullness of God's wrath, that he would no longer be in his father's presence. And the thought of that, of what he was about to experience, began to to overwhelm Jesus. Listen to how Luke describes this account in Luke 22. It's even more graphic than this. It says this, he withdrew, talking about Jesus, about a stone's thrown beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then listen to what it says. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground says that Jesus was in anguish. He was in despair. He was so overwhelmed that he began to sweat blood. Like that's how much he's physically breaking down. That's the, the stress, the weight that he's carrying. But even in this moment, as he's overwhelmed, Jesus says this, not as I will, but as you will, God. What Jesus is saying is, God, here's my desire. Here's my heart. Here's what I want. I don't want to do this. If there's any other possible way, now is the time to show me. But I will submit my life. I will submit my desires. I will submit myself to your will. And as much as Jesus is dreading what is about to happen on the cross, Jesus' greatest desire was to fulfill the will of his Father was to obey and honor his father. That was his greatest desire. Verse 40 says this, then Jesus returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He said, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. He said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, he spends this time praying and pleading with God, and he goes back and he finds his disciples, his three closest friends in the world, the guys he counted on the most, and they're there on the ground sleeping. 
when he needs them. In his time of crisis, they're asleep. And he says, are you, are you serious? Like, all I needed you to do was to keep watch, and you let me down. So he tells them, look, I need you to keep watch, and I need you to pray. And why is Jesus encouraging them to, to pray? He says, so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus knew that just in a matter of moments, he was going to be arrested that he was going to be tried and beaten and crucified. And he knew his disciples are going to be faced with the choice. Do we stick with Jesus to the end? Or do we back out and do we run? And Jesus is saying, you need to pray that you do not fall into temptation. Verse 42 says this. Jesus went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus once again begins to plead with God, God, take this cup from me if there's any other way. But once again, he says, I will submit myself to your will. Not my will, but your will be done. His greatest desire was to obey his father. And then verse 43 tells us this. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Jesus comes back, and once again, his friends, the guys he's counting on, they've let him down. And rather than even trying to wake them up, Jesus goes and he prays again for a third time, pleading with God. I just want to pause for a moment here and highlight something. I, I, I want you to see the priority that Jesus placed on prayer. In his greatest moment of distress, when he was completely overwhelmed by life, rather than turning to his family, rather than turning to his friends, Jesus turned to his heavenly Father in prayer. See, prayer was not a last resort for Jesus. Prayer was the first response for him. And if Jesus... God in flesh, the Son of God, valued and needed prayer that much. How much more do we? In our times of trouble, in our times of sorrow, when we feel overwhelmed in life, we need to turn to God in prayer just like Jesus did. So three times Jesus, he goes and pleads with his Father, but he says, not my will but yours be done. And then the story, it ends by saying this. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, we have many accounts about Jesus and, and the four Gospels, many stories about his life, uh, but this is by far the most vulnerable account of Jesus that we have. You know, normally in the Gospels, you see Jesus as, as the hero. He's performing miracles. He's preaching sermons. He seems to have it all together. But here in this story, in this account, Jesus is completely broken. He's completely overwhelmed. And we see the humanity of Jesus, the, the, the human side of Jesus on full display. We get a look, a glimpse into what was going on inside of his heart. And you may be wondering, okay, great, but like, why does this matter? 
Like, what, what does this mean for us today? The fact that Jesus was in this garden and was overwhelmed and crying and sweating blood and crying out to God. Like, what difference does that make for us today? You see, I, I think it's easy for us to think of God as being distant and far off. For us to, to think that God couldn't possibly understand us, that God couldn't possibly understand what we're going through. To, to, to feel like God is just removed from our life, God is so distant and removed from our situation. But students, listen, we don't serve a God who is distant and removed. We don't serve a God who is unable to understand us and unable to understand what we go through and to empathize with us. We serve a God who willingly chose to become like us so that he could relate to us, so that he could understand us, so that he could empathize with us. And the author of Hebrews, he highlights this in, in Hebrews chapter four. Listen to what the, the author of Hebrews writes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. You see, in the Old Testament, you read about the high priest. And the high priest, they had a very unique role. They were the representative between God and the people. And they would, would go to, to God and receive a message and, and communicate it to the people. And they would go on behalf of the people to God and make sacrifices to, to atone for, for the sins. They were the only one who had access to God. But when Jesus came, that changed everything. And Jesus became our great high priest. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap for us between us and God. Jesus is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And the author of Hebrews, he's highlighting it. And then he says this in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It says we have a high priest in Jesus who can empathize with us, who understands our weaknesses, and the reason he can understand our weaknesses is because Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Jesus has faced every temptation that we have faced, temptations for power, temptations for greed, temptations for revenge, temptations for, for lust, but it says he did not sin. Jesus was not overcome by sin, but instead Jesus overcame sin on the cross. You see, students, Jesus experienced, Jesus walked through all the same challenges, all the same struggles that we face Yes, he didn't have social media. Yes, his life looked maybe different, but humans are humans. The things we struggle with today are the same things that Jesus struggled with. Listen, Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends. Have you ever had a friend betray you? Have you ever had a friend break your trust? Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus was misunderstood by his family. His family thought he was crazy. His family thought he lost his mind. Have you ever had your family not understand you? You feel like there's tension and conflict? Jesus was falsely accused. People made up lies about him. 
Jesus was slandered. Jesus was gossiped about. Jesus faced all of these things, and he felt all the same emotions. Jesus felt anger. Jesus felt sadness. Jesus felt frustration. He felt joy. Like he has been through it all. He's walked through it. And listen to what it says. Because of this, because Jesus empathizes, because he understands, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our greatest time of need. You know, I think for many people, when they think about approaching God, about coming into God's presence, confidence is the last thing that comes to their mind. When they think about approaching God, the thing that comes to their mind is fear. Like if I come to God with, 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 my, with my mess, with my issues, with my brokenness, man, I'm afraid God is gonna be mad at me, that God is angry with me, that God is, is frustrated with me. Or some, they, they, they approach God with, with shame. Be like, man, God must be so disappointed with me because I just keep making the same mistake over and over. God must be so embarrassed that I call myself a Christian and I just keep doing the same thing over and over. But listen, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who have placed our faith and our hope in him, it says that we can approach God with boldness and confidence. We have direct access to him. We don't have to go through a high priest like in the old days. We can go directly to God with boldness and confidence. Listen, when, when my two-year-old daughter needs something from me or my wife, she approaches us with confidence. She doesn't care what time of the day it is. She doesn't care what's going on. She doesn't care if we're on the phone. She doesn't care if we're in a conversation. She doesn't care if we're trying to work. If she needs something, she boldly approaches and she lets us know. And the reason she comes to us with confidence is because she knows we are the ones who can meet her greatest needs. When she needs something, we're the people to, to, to come to. And listen, God invites us, God invites you, God invites me to come to him with that same level of confidence, with that same level of, of boldness and audacity. And what is it that we're gonna find? What is it that we're gonna receive when we approach God with that kind of confidence? Are, are we gonna find anger? where God is, is saying, why can't you get it together? Are, are, are we gonna find shame of, why do you just keep messing up over and over? Are we gonna, gonna, gonna find frustration and annoyance? I can't believe you're back again. No, the author of Hebrews says that when we approach God with that confidence and that boldness, we find mercy and we find grace in our time of need. And what is mercy? Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. You see, our sin deserves judgment. But when we come to God openly and we're vulnerable and we're real and we bring our sin to God and we own it and we confess it, yes, there may be consequences, but God withholds judgment 
and instead he offers us forgiveness and kindness and compassion. He says, you come to me with your mess, you come to me with that, that, that bad mistake, you come to me with your sin, and you're not gonna find anger, you're not gonna find disappointment, you're not gonna find shame, you're gonna find mercy. And you will find grace. And what is grace? Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And when we bring our mess to God, when we bring our hurt, our disappointment, our questions, our frustrations, our brokenness, when we bring that to God, God meets us with his grace. He offers us peace. He offers us comfort. He offers us joy and wisdom and understanding. God, he says, come to me with confidence, with boldness, and I will meet you exactly where you're at. You don't have to come perfect. You don't have to clean yourself up. Come to me as you are, and I will meet you there. In Isaiah 53, chapter, or chapter 53, verse 3, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Listen to what it said about him. It says, Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus is often referred to as the son of suffering as someone who was despised, as someone who was rejected, as someone who was familiar with pain. Jesus is someone who cried, who wept. Jesus is someone who bled. Jesus is someone who hurt deeply. And you know what that means for you tonight? That means that Jesus understands you. Jesus empathizes with you. Jesus gets you because Jesus became like you. God stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, became one of us so that we could have a relationship with him. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, God, we thank you that you are not a God who is distant and removed and uninterested in our lives, a God who is angry and frustrated and disappointed, but you are a God who desires to relate to us, who desires to have a relationship with us. And you demonstrated that, God, by becoming one of us, by leaving your throne, by stepping out of heaven and coming and taking on flesh. And God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the the hope and the confidence that we have knowing that you have walked through all the same struggles, all the same challenges, emotions, temptations, but you did not sin, you did not falter. And God, my prayer for us tonight, for myself, for our leaders, for our students, God, is that we would not run from you, that we would not feel like you are are far off, God, but that we would draw near to you with confidence, with boldness, so that we can receive mercy and find grace, God, in our time of need. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray, amen.